Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series and an accompanying exhibition at the Howarth Art Gallery, I am exploring movement, migration and making through cloth, using pieces found in the Gawthorpe Textile Collection to tell the stories behind what we wear. Focusing on four fabrics, silk, linen, wool and cotton, I'm investigating the global strands of local stories that link Lancashire, at the heart of the textile industry in Britain, to areas throughout Europe, Asia, Africa and the Americas. In the Gawthorpe textile collection, there's an intricately patterned shawl of fine cashmere wool made in India in the late 18th century. The shawl is an Amli shawl, a technique where small woven pieces are hand sewn together and then further embellished with embroidery to create an incredibly rich textured design. This is a very labour intensive and highly skilled process and shawls in this particular technique were mainly produced for local nobles and royal families in India. Wool has a long history in Britain, not only through trade and later colonial links with the Indian subcontinent, but also the domestic manufacture of woolen yarn and fabric, which has enormous importance in economic history. I spoke to the writer and knitter Esther Rutter, who began by explaining how we get from fleece to fabric. Well, wool, of course, comes from sheep. Um, and in order to get a usable fibre um, from that kind of raw material, um, you have to go through a series of processes. Uh, a first thing is you need to get the wool off the sheep. Now, um, this is, it might seem like a really kind of obvious place to start, but it actually shows a, a really important kind of variety and difference and history of sheep breeds. So in Britain, um, we have hundreds of sheep breeds, but actually the term breeds is a relatively new one. Um, breeds were only kind of codified at the end of the 18th into the 19th century. Before that, we had different types of sheep, um, but they were more like what we would call land races. So they were developed in particular areas because of the climatic geographic variations within those places. The kind of the earliest, what are known as the primitive sheep type are still found predominantly around the kind of north, east, northwest coast of the British Isles and Scotland in particular. And um, they have a fleece which doesn't need to be sheared and their fleece naturally rises. It's called the lith. And their fleece will just come away when the weather is warm and when they don't need that thick extra coating. And what happens is the new fleece coming through basically pushes the old fibers up and away from the sheep. When, for example, um, the St Kildan Islanders were evacuated from St Kildan in 1930, their sheep were left on the island. They weren't brought to the mainland. And then when um, scientists went back 50 years later to see how they'd got on, the sheep were absolutely fine because they still had, they didn't need to be sheared. They were shearing themselves. Now, so that's one way you get the, she <laughs> the fleas off a sheep. Um, but most of the breeds that are farmed commercially are more modern breeds and they've been developed, um, well, for different purposes, either for the meat, um, for the fleece, um, or for a combination of both. And so with these breeds, um, basically the softer and longer the fibres are on a, on a fleece, the more kind of valuable um, they are. Again, it's depending on what you're using them for, but broadly speaking, that's the case. Um, but 
as breeds are um, kind of developed and uh, you have they're selectively husbanded, um, some of them lose this capacity to shear themselves. And so people have to go in. And originally it was with basically like a pair of scissors and they were cut off by hand. Uh, and it is still the case actually in some um, more kind of geographically uh, distant areas and in very small flocks when people perhaps do their own sheep. Um, but most shearing is done um, with a clipper, uh, basically like a beard trimmer. Um, <laughs> and the sheep is kind of held in between the legs by the farmer and or the shearer and given a haircut. And that normally takes place as the weather warms in the late spring and into the summer. So then you have your fleece. The fleece uh, can't be spun in its raw form. It's too dirty. Um, it needs to have it needs to be scoured. So basically cleaned. And it also then needs to be combed or carded. So combs um, are kind of another word for them is heckles and they're long kind of metal, a bit like claws, really. And they basically kind of rake the fleece down. And the idea of that is that you're getting all the fleece or the fibres, um, you're getting the knots out and you're getting them more or less in the same direction. So, yes, you either card or comb and that will depend on what your what type of yarn you want to produce. So there are two types. One is wool and spun. Um, it's not as smooth. All the fibers aren't running in, a, in the same direction. They're kind of sticking out all over the place. And it's that kind of, we call it a halo. Um, and you might look, if you look at a really woolly jumper, you'll see that kind of halo around it. Um, and the good, the benefit of spinning like that is that it traps more air in but it's less smooth. So the other way of spinning is called worsted spun, and that's where you comb and you get the fibres all kind of pretty much in the same direction. And that gives a smoother and slightly stronger, in most cases, um, uh, yarn or thread. And so then uh, the machine, well, you would use an industrial spinning machine, but traditionally it would have been done either on a hand loom or even what was called on the rock. So basically with a spindle, a drop spindle, but the process is essentially the same, whether mechanized or not. Um, and you're twisting, you're adding twist, to twist all those fibers together and twisting adds strength. And that's why you can create um, fibers of, of miles, <laughs> kilometers in length um, by twisting them all together. Then it needs to be wound onto something like a cone. Um, so it's usable, particularly if you're making anything very large, a cone is much more useful than a little ball. But if you were you know, spinning at home domestically, you could wind it into whatever you liked. Uh, and then again, depending on what you want to use it for, it can be dyed. Um, yeah, and then pretty much you're ready to, you have a saleable product and uh, so you can find your market. What's the earliest evidence we have of wool in the British Isles? Pretty much the Stone Age um, or the very late Stone Age. Um, so Neolithic remains show, A, that sheep um, were being husbanded here um, by that point um, and that their byproducts were being used. And particularly, we know that their fibre was being used in some kind of clothing or domestically because we find spindle whorls and so yeah so basically pretty much as long as there's human history in the British Isles wool is right up there it's such an important fibre because it is absolutely um, amazing for keeping people warm as well as sheep obviously um, and particularly the keeping warm thing it does work in reverse it keeps it does help to cool um, but wool actually produces warmth because um, it, when you have uh, the chemical process of adsorption, so water in the air is absorbed into woolen fibre, as well as the, the fibres themselves trapping air close to the skin of the wearer, which is like a, a definite bonus and adds a huge amount of warmth to the wearer. You have that intrinsic heat creation um, in woolen fibres that you don't find in things like cotton um, or hemp or other uh, plant-based fibres. What did the Romans make of British wool? 
So when the Romans first came to Britain, they noticed that um, British fleece was different to the, the sheep types that they were used to in kind of central and Mediterranean Europe. Um, they had what we, we now call the Cretan type sheep, and they were basically fluffy, woolly sheep. Um, <laughs> your children's picture book, bar, bar, black sheep um, and the other ones um, type uh, thing. And so when they came to Britain, um, they uh, realized that the sheep type, there were this primitive type um, this darker uh, fleece. And it was very, very soft as well. And so when the Romans came, they noticed that British fleece was finer than anywhere else that they had seen in, in the empire at the time. And that they, uh, that it was darker as well um, than the fleece that they used to. And in fact, when they brought their own Cretan type sheep to Britain, um, there is, uh, there are stories told of them making little leather jackets uh, to wear over the top to keep the white fleece from getting tangled in thorns and briars and that kind of thing. Um, so yes, the Romans kind of, obviously the Romans, when they came to Britain, they had this contact with a huge um, market. And so they realized, I guess they were the first people to kind of um, put British wool on the international, the European market um, at that time. So it's been a bit, a really big part of uh, Britain's economic life, I guess, for pretty much a thousand years. So the relationship between Lancashire and wool and Yorkshire and wool um, is quite different. So in the words of one of my great friends from Lancashire, Lancashire never got over cotton. Uh, and it's true that the cotton mills of Lancashire were a huge driver of the Industrial Revolution and the massive economic benefit that Britain derived from that. That said, um, it wasn't all just about cotton. And Lancashire, of course, is partly, particularly historically speaking, um, a rural county, particularly towards its north. And so um, towns um, that are in what was modern day Cumbria, but were then in Lancashire, um, would send their wool, big wool uh, towns like Kendal and uh, and even Lancaster was a big gathering point for lots of different fleeces. And so there was a huge amount of wealth in Lancashire and that's much earlier than the cotton spinning boom. So that we're talking kind of medieval period. Before the medieval period, um, Britain's wool had been exported predominantly in its raw form. It wasn't being processed in the British Isles. Uh, and so, although it was very, very valuable because of its fineness of fibre, um, we, we weren't kind of value adding to the product at that time. This changed in the medieval period, largely through um, the persecution of the Huguenot weavers and spinners um, from parts of France and the Netherlands and Belgium kind of area and a number of them came in to the British Isles at that point and specialised in wool basically from turning the raw material into into yarn and then into woven fabric in particular. Um, now areas like uh, Lancashire um, obviously this is way before the cotton spinning boom um, they did have a, a huge amount of wealth coming in from their more rural because at that point Lancashire was a, a largely rural county coming in from the farms and the Grange farms that was being brought down uh, and then actually turned into a more valuable commodity further south um, but a lot of wealth because it was the trading of the wool basically each point that you sell uh, wool you make a profit and the more times you sell it the more people get more profit along the way uh, and so Lancashire became hugely wealthy in part because it had these wool farms and it's only really at the end of the um, 18th into the 19th century that cotton kind of overtakes wool as the sort of dominant um, I guess economic um, textile in that area. What's the earliest evidence we have for checked woolen fabric in Scotland? 
Ah, interesting. Is it perchance tartan <laughs> that you're very carefully not using that word? Um, <laughs> so again, tartan is really early. Um, as Well, I, again, I'm saying tartan, but wo your woven checked fabric is, is a more accurate term. Um, certainly, it's very, very early. Uh, it's way before Scotland, at, as we call it today, exists. Um, you get a series of basically small kingdoms and there's, um, you know, centuries of power struggles between these different areas and um, woven fabric was in, kind of invented and widely used way before knitted fabric um, although today we tend to associate wool and knitting very closely um, actually it has a huge history um, of weaving before that and so um, what we now call Scotland was as today cooler and damper than most of the rest of the British Isles, perhaps excluding Wales. And so the wearing of heavy woolen um, plaids, um, which is derived from the Gallic word uh, for speckled, were worn, it was just an essential part of life, really a heavy woolen plaid. And um, they were worn, women wore them kind of wrapped around themselves, men wore them long with a kind of sash. And there are evidences from at least the time of the Vikings, because um, by the time of Magnus Barelegs, so the Viking invader in um, at the in the ninth century, the reason he he's now known as Magnus Barelegs is because when he came to um, the Western Isles, what's today the Hebrides, he adopted what he saw the men wearing there, which was the plaid. So instead of trousers or close-fitting leg coverings, um, it was the plaid uh, worn as a kind a kind of skirt. Um, and so he took this fashion with him. Uh, and he popularized it among the Norse. And so that's where his, his name Magnus Barelegs comes from. So we know that by at least the kind of ninth century, um, you were, people were wearing, uh, yeah, the, the plaid um, in Scotland. Can wool be revolutionary? Can wool be revolutionary? It's a bold statement, but it absolutely is. I mean, it revolutionized Britain. <laughs> um, it made it, as I said when I was talking about the Romans coming in, um, it made it an economic powerhouse. Um, it was the value that it brought to Britain um, was second to none at that at, in that period in history. Um, it also explains why Britain looks the way it does. So the reason that we have churches in the Cotswolds and in East Anglia is because they were paid for from the proceeds of, of woven um, textiles and wool generally in the Middle Ages. And the way the reason that there are no forests in the highlands is because sheep have grazed those forests into oblivion it's the reason that there are mills in yorkshire and that you have the mill towns um, and places like harrogate and and saltaire is because it's the processing and sale of wool that has brought wealth to that area that has allowed those buildings to be built so wool has revolutionized our lives we just don't realize it um when we travel about um and I think it has, because of its, say, its, one, if, if you have sheep, it is essentially a free pod product. You don't need to do anything to the sheep except for keep them alive and will will be the outcome. And it's, it keeps you warm. Uh, it is incredibly flexible. Um, and it also, you know, it can take dyes. It can be spun. It can be um, felted. And basically everything that is a kind of textile that we use in our homes at one time probably was made from wool um, because it, we processed it here uh, centuries before things like cotton were available to us. So wool has been a kind of underpinning of people's uh, economics, uh, sorry, of people's economies, um, of their domestic lives. And 
now we use it very little and there's a another kind of i feel like another sort of revolution with it is coming because it is so there is such a low price that farmers most farmers get for wool in this country now people who farm sheep today are they have to sell their wool to the british wool board unless they're a very very small farmer or they have a particular rare breed type of yarn which need a uh, type of sheep which needs specialist treatment um and the british wool board is competing on a global scale and is selling the whole british wool crop so the what a farmer gets for shearing a fleece can actually be less than it costs to have somebody help them shear that fleece and it's a very um difficult thing to reconcile is the true worth of wool and what it can be used for and then the actual price that a farmer will get paid for producing it um so i think that because we wool is also completely biodegradable it's completely non-toxic and it actually absorbs toxins from the air so at this point when we're considering um how can we live in a more sustainable more environmentally friendly way wool has a lot of answers um as i say it doesn't require any post-processing you can fling it on the garden and it will break down and it will enrich the soil and it will also increase water retention in the soil and so um i think that there's we're we're due a wool revolution it's happening in small ways within the craft community there's in the last decade there's been a lot more um people kind of looking at rare breed specific yarns, yarns that come from exactly where they're from. Um, and sheep breeds are, of course, named after the place that they come from. They're incredibly geographically specific. And I think it's about time that that went out from the crafting community uh, into the rest of our kind of culture. Geographical connections with wool were not confined to Britain. The Amley shawl in the Gawthorpe collection may have been produced for local consumption, but many exquisitely fine cashmere wool shawls from India became incredible status symbols in Europe. As highly desirable commodities, industrialists in Europe were quick to capitalise on their appeal and employed new industrial methods to ensure that profits were maximised. Artist Raisa Kabir explores these histories in her work. Hi, I'm Raisa Kabir. I'm a textile artist based in London. I grew up in Manchester, surrounded by um, the ghosts of the industrial textile heritage of the 19th century, and it's informed my practice ever since. I work in performance, I build looms, deconstruct looms. Uh, I'm a global textile researcher. I've worked in Mexico, Bangladesh, and India. Um, I'm always interested in the stories that textiles can tell and the narratives and histories that they are related to. So for the British Textile Biennial 2021, I'm building upon my research um, that I've been doing as a, a co-commissioned residency with Art and Manufacturing and the British Textile Biennial Super Slow Way that uh, started out in 2019. During this residency, I've worked with the Gawthorpe textile collection. I've worked with the Lancashire Textile Heritage Collection at Queen Street Mill and also the John Forbes Watson book collections, the Textile Manufacturers of India collection at the Harris Museum and Art Gallery. I've been using textile archives as a starting point to explore the many histories of why certain diasporas of many people who live in Lancashire have come to be here and how many of the textiles that I've looked at that come from South Asia especially have come to be a part of Lancashire textile collections. 
of some of these collections, we have textiles from Punjab, uh, Lahore, Herat, Dhaka, Silet, Calcutta. Many of these places are the hometowns and homelands of many people who live in Lancashire. I've been creating some textiles that use the idea of pattern as a type of weaving or woven language um, that is universal and is something that can communicate these migrational histories. The pieces of work are a reference to the history of textile archives and the practice of archives and maybe the politics of what it means to collect and to take things from indigenous lands and in a way curate a, curate a future way of looking at patterns and a future archive of the people, um, of many people who live in Lancashire today. Could you tell me a bit about the textile manufacturers of India fabric sample books that you're using? So at the Harris Museum and Art Gallery, there is a full complete collection of a series of volumes entitled The Textile Manufacturers of India. This was created by a man called John Forbes Watson. So sometimes they're referred to as the JFW or the John Forbes Watson books. He was the director of the India Museum in 1866 and created these books um, as a kind of job where he decided that it was in response to the Great Exhibition and, and in lots of places where people were questioning the uh, the skill of uh, British textile design. Uh, this was a, a moment in time where India and, and parts of South Asia were already part of the British Empire um, and Britain was already selling and manufacturing many types of fabrics back to India but the, the design of them perhaps weren't as, as well uh, established. So the use of these books was to take many, 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 many textiles that were from all over the geographies of South Asia at the time or colonial India at the time. And it, it's all catalogued on the website at the Harris Museum and Art Gallery. And there's a, a, collected, a collected archive online where you can access everything you can see all of the maps um, and all the regions there were 700 samples created into 18 volumes and of these 18 volumes 20 were made 13 were sent to centers of british industry and design and art schools and so they were, they are a significant example of the systematic categorizing of textile design in India and how it was used to have these designs be appropriated and sent to British design schools to um, co-opt and use their designs as a way to sell them back to India. And this is an example of, of what this kind of organising and collecting and cutting up of these very beautiful fabrics into hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of samples. The books are quite small, the samples are very small, but they have the names, the uses, the dates, the, the, the kind of anglicised names um, of all of these samples. So one volume perhaps will you know, have examples of um, Kashmiri woven cloth, but we'll, you know, we'll call it a pine cone pattern. And we'll say, you know, and the Kashmir will be spelled C-A-S-H-M-E-I. Um, so we can see the kind of categorising and the, the violence that what it does to collect and and system and systemize the uh, these textiles in this way.
When did shawls from Kashmir become status symbols in Europe? And what impact did that have on hand weaving or textile production in South Asia? Um, Kani weaving is a type of weaving that originates in Kashmir, um, which is the northwest region um, of India today. Uh, it's a very hilly region and um, the, the, the wool would have come from these very special goats and was uh, was spun into very fine, soft fibres. Originally, these shawls were quite plain. They would have very small design elements. Um, they were very popular because they were very light. Um, they started to be imported to Europe um, very early on in um, uh, kind of like the British arrival um, and uh, the, the French and the Dutch. They very early on were traders as, as like gifts. They were given as gifts by Nawabs and things like that. Um, and they were seen as status symbols. They were completely hand-woven. So these are shawls that have been made using a tapestry technique. So each colour is done individually. They slowly became um, more and more ornate, um, catering to certain designs. And the, the, the introduction of the buta or the ambi um, was very small and, and, and then it became more and more prominent. These were generally desirable between 1770 and 1870s uh, in Britain, uh, Europe and, and America. The establishment of the jacquard loom, uh, which was a technology basically invented to rival the craft of the skill of these labourers who were creating these incredible designs by hand. No shafts, no, no kind of device to pick up these patterns, all done by hand, done as a kind of collective tapestry um, on, on, a, on a canny loom. And the jacquard loom introduced uh, a way to undercut and outprice and compete with the production of hand weaving in Kashmir. Um, and this devastated the, the industry there of hand weavers. Um, and it still has an impact today. It, a canny, a traditional inlay, canny woven cloth done in in the brocade style, you know, no 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 loose threads, is extremely rare and it, it is hardly done today at all. And if it if it does, it's it, they're worth like six thousand pounds. Around eighteen fifty, we had you know the town of Paisley, um, they were sort of introduced to the Jacquard loom. To they were already weavers there in Scotland. They were already had skills to be weavers, and were already weaving wool. And so the the patterns became very popular, and then were um, adjusted and changed, um, but were given different names. So the the, the buta, which it originates from, became very popular on these shawls, worn you know with the Muslim dresses. These were made on the jacquard looms and done very quickly, very efficiently, but um, were poor imitations and using, um, I think, British wool. Sometimes they mixed it with silk. These became extremely popular. And by this point in 1850, these shawls were called Paisley and were um, considered indigenous British uh, clothing and design. A lot of your work looks at movement, migration, imperialism and identity through cloth. Can you tell me about the piece you made for the AMBI exhibition in Glasgow? What stories did you explore? For the show at CCA, I was invited to um, respond to the work that some of the artists had done using the Glasgow School of Art archives, which include 
some designs of Paisley. I have a strong connection to Scotland and I think um, whilst I was there I was looking at the way um, I've been to the Paisley Museum archives and the way that um, Kashmiri woven Indian cloth is described in in the V&A Dundee you know, as Paisley and, and the use of, of language and how language when we remove indigenous words how that's a type of cultural imperialism it's a it's a way to remove um agency and provenance and and has an impact an ongoing impact um and we know that there are many people in uh, in scotland and glasgow um, but these textiles are their textile heritage and we have to think about the way um, Paisley is being described and it's being allocated as purely only uh, a Scottish fabric when actually it has these roots and these long-standing roots with long-standing meaning. So my work used an idea of kind of embodying the idea of a cr the craft labourer and how we might imagine and orientalise a version of this romantic labourer who doesn't really exist and has sort of been removed from their land. Kashmir is um, a contested area and is, it, it is subject to a lot of border violence, um, you know, post-decolonisation um, in, in 1947. Um, it, it's it's been um, contested over and has become a war zone. Uh, the weaving of this place um, is a reminder of the testament of the history and the culture and the language. People had to leave their land, um, and textiles are one of the first things that people are able to take with them if they have to leave. It's portable and it and it travels well. So making these connections, I've created this performance where. I worked with um, a type of weaving that doesn't exist in um, in Kashmir and is a backstrap loom. And I was just trying to perform a piece that evoked challenging the viewer to maybe think about why things are named, the things they are, where have they come from, and what do we assume about them. And so I was creating a performance where people might assume things about me but the, the, the video and the weaving also challenged that as well. Um, what does it mean to embody a, a South Asian femme weaver in a wild, indistinguishable, grassy land? Um, and, and just think about where things might be from Scotland or things might be from Kashmir and the connections that, um, that are held together with that. Your work is incredibly innovative, covering textiles, history and performance, among other things. What do you think is so powerful about the stories that textiles can tell? Textiles are universal. So wherever you go, people have, will have found a way to weave. And I find that intensely um, interesting and wonderful. And for me, textiles are related to human technology. They're, you know, inventing looms and inventing ways of building um, are the first types of kind of technology and construction that would have enabled people um, to build and weave and build shelter and housing. And I, and I find it fascinating researching um, like the history of the loom and working with a very ancient type of looms um, called backstrap looms, and then going into you know really intensive um, industrial type weaving um, they get more and more and more complicated but you know even when I've been working with industry standard um, manufacturing level looms in 
they do the same thing and I love that I love that you can't really do anything to weaving apart from making it more complicated but essentially it, it, it's 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 the collection of threads that create a surface and the fact that they contain an embodied history that some type of writing or some kind of painting just can't communicate things that are close to us in the home and the domestic and the fact that they're generally made by women but also men but the fact that they're undervalued as a type of um, history and communication um, which I think is, is really extremely rich and people take such pride in the patterns and the colours and the fact that textiles are often going to be if they are related to place they are related to the types of fabric and fiber and, and skills and dye that are related to that geography um, and you can learn so much about a place just looking at their textile heritage and culture. Can you tell me about the Amley shawl in the Gawthorpe textile collection? So this shawl has been woven and also embroidered so it's an extreme example of intensive work and these would have been done in royal workshops you'd have several people um, working on these and they might have you know some of them took decades to make and um, as it says on the Gawthorpe textile um, website these were gifts and that you know they would have been um, handed out to other uh, royalty and um, often there are examples of these kind of shawls being given to like Queen Victoria so they're extremely rare um, to have this um, amount of incredible handwork um, and it's an absolute stunning example. This beautiful handcrafted shawl tells us a multitude of stories about the relationship between Britain and Southern Asia and once we start unpicking the threads we see this process of textiles used as tools of empire and expansion repeated throughout European history. Join me next time on the Cloth Cultures podcast when I'll be returning to Scottish wool in a story that will take us around the globe from Culloden to the Caribbean. You can find out more about the British Textile Biennials commissions and programme of events on Twitter at Textile Biennial and on Facebook and Instagram at British Textile Biennial. See you next time. <laughs>